Hello everybody and welcome to our Sciencepo research podcast where we talk to Sciencepo faculty about their studies of issues that are the most important issues of our time, such as environment that we've discussed in the first season of the podcast, or democracy, democratic backsliding, challenges to democracy, such as populism and non-democratic regimes, which we discuss in the second season. And this is what we are going to talk about today. Today, we have on our podcast uh, research professor, CNRS research professor, Eberhard Kinley, who works at the Center for International Studies, CERI, at Sciences Po. Eberhard has had a long and distinguished career studying political regimes in the Middle East and North Africa. And recently, last year, he published a book about Egypt, Egypt, a Fragile Power. Eberhard, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for the presentation and thanks for having me. Thank you, Eberhard. So your book uh, is called Egypt, a Fragile Power. Nobody doubts that Egypt is a power. It is one <laughs> of the largest countries in the world. Actually, it's a 14th or 15th uh, country in terms of population, it is a home to more than 100 million people, and it changes every year by about 2 million per year. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, third largest country in Africa, and it is definitely uh, the most important party country. And it is um, the most important country in the Arab world. But why do you call it fragile? What is so fragile in a country where it looks like military have complete control over the society and over the economy? Well, I mean, I might start from the last question you're raising. Precisely the role of the military makes the country fragile, ultimately. Now, very often, of course, we think about Egypt, as you're saying, about a country which is strong, which has a long history uh, which, uh, well, people think about as the country that nationalized the Suez Canal, uh, that fought various wars, uh, a country that indeed has a large uh, cultural scene, has had a large cultural scene, which everybody knows. And most Arabs, of course, uh, for a long time, uh, will look to Egypt for guidance, for intellectual inspiration, and so on and so forth. So indeed, what I'm saying is slightly counterintuitive. Nonetheless, if we look at Egypt today, and if we look at Egypt for the last, say, decades, or even for more than a couple of decades, we see that Egypt is in fact, well, a indeed large country, a country that presents itself as very powerful, that tries to be a regional power that has sort of uh, diplomatic and military activities all around, but in fact that is built, you might say, on debt. And that's, of course, a major fragility. Um, now, uh, not only is it built on debt, but also it is built on an economy which, in fact, well, doesn't generate the resources that the country consumes and that the country spends, especially its government. And the government rarely, or the governments, the, the successive governments, have rarely managed to somehow break even or even to do more and to actually, well, uh, engage the country on something that might be called uh, inclusive and uh, durable uh, development. That's a great point to make, and indeed the country, in you know, an autocratic country that I come from, the government is keenly aware of this challenge, mm. which is if you borrow too much, you become dependent on your creditors. And that's why Mr. Mm. Putin, with all his deficiencies, mistakes, and horrible decisions that he's made uh, in the 20 years in power, he's avoided being in, indebted. Mm. 
He tried to avoid big budget deficits because he knew that when you have a budget deficit, you have to go to the IMF, International Monetary, uh, for help and support. And sometimes that is accompanied by conditionalities. Mm. Uh, is that playing a role in uh, Egyptian politics? Do the military who run the country understand this challenge? And why don't they worry about this? Well, I suppose um, they are probably aware of this challenge. Uh, but they are not necessarily doing enough about it, or we would, or I would probably argue that they have countervailing objectives as well. Now, uh, if we just take a little step back, I mean, we know that Egypt has been in debt in a sense and has been going regularly, or not quite regularly, every couple of years or every couple or every decade, uh, to the IMF for help. And the first time it was in 1962 and then again 1965, and it was repeated. So everybody knows that this is a painful and problematic approach, but nonetheless, somehow, the successive Egyptian governments haven't managed to go beyond that. So every couple of years, somehow, expenditure balloons, uh, debt balloons, and somehow it needs to be reined in again. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily going to the IMF is the wonderful solution, but uh, it has been, in a sense, unavoidable because somehow these policies were always too ambitious. Some people say social policies were too ambitious, maybe true, but certainly uh, military expenditure has been very ambitious and uh, the peace with Israel hasn't changed very much in that respect. Um, so uh, there are these uh, ideas of Egypt playing a role in Libya, uh, in Palestine as well. In Palestine, it is not quite military, uh, but then sometimes in Yemen where they managed to get st st stay out of it, but in Sudan. So there is a lot of money going into this and a lot of money is going into repressive apparatus. And of course, a lot of money is going simply in maintaining people who are around these successive military governments who are in place since the 1950s and who have been accustomed to live on rent. So uh, my question is, in fact, how the government pursues its goals. So when you're talking about um, the cost of being a regional power, when mm. you are a leader of the Arab world, mm. when you are the most important Arab country, as you said, Egypt occasionally plays a major role outside of its borders. To what extent it's part of the ruling regime's uh, narrative, objectives, or is just a, is just a distraction from domestic problems which the regime uses to stay in power? To what extent, how how this government uh, faces this trade-off between money it can spend domestically and become more popular with more ambitious social policies, but also be active outside? Well, the question is a complicated one that you're raising. Um, again, I think it's useful to go a little bit back in history, and if we notice, if we look at the 19th century, we, we see that, is, that Egypt in the 19th century already, those who used to run Egypt in this period, they already saw themselves as a regional power. Now, this didn't really come true because then the British came along and occupied the country for various reasons and the British stayed some time, the period of colonialism. But um, even in that period, Egypt always tried, or those who under British overlordship tried to run Egypt, uh, well, they nonetheless had these ideas. So it's an old idea, and I think it has maybe something to do with, say, the location of Egypt, uh, but certainly it has something to do with the origins of the Egyptian state, the current Egyptian state, which in fact was built at the very beginning of the 19th century, 
and which was built in a, say, international void. So uh, the European powers were busy with the Napoleonic Wars and all sorts of other business. And uh, so, in fact, uh, Mehmed Ali, Muhammad Ali, as he is called by Arabic speakers, uh, who didn't speak a word of Arabic, by the way, but uh, who uh, nonetheless was venerated as the Egyptian, uh, well, the Egyptian godfather, you might say. So um, Mehmed Ali, uh, in fact, uh, tried to use that uh, moment that situation, not only to build the Egyptian state, but also to build a larger power base around. And in fact, his, many people say his original idea was to uh, supplant uh, the sultan in, 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 in Constantinople. Um, but this was sort of, say, a, it was part and parcel of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of state building in Egypt. Now, uh, this somehow has been perpetuated. This again came to the fore after um, after there's a degree of path dependency, you might say, but also, of course, then other moments, um, other, other issues came along, and somehow Egypt, well, because it was a relatively institutionalized country among other Arab countries, more than other countries, uh, it, of course, could arrogate itself this leadership role. Uh, it could influence rather than being be influenced by other Arab states because they all spoke the same language. Of course, Egypt could try to be the leader of these countries, and that's what happened. So there was a opportunity. There was a say. Well, depending whether you call it a pull factor or a push factor, and then at the same time, of course, arose the issue with Israel, and somehow the creation of the state of Israel in this part of the world by the Arabic speakers was seen very much as a danger, as a challenge, and so there was this idea of, on the one hand, one has the opportunity to lead, and on the other hand, there was perhaps, at least subjectively, the need the need to lead, and so a lot of money ended up in military enterprises, in uh, related issues, infrastructures, and of course, a lot of money ended up in this idea that Egypt had to catch up. If Egypt wanted to be the equal of the British who had occupied it, and of course the other colonial powers, well, Egypt needed to be the equal of those countries. So a huge program of investment, largely, of course, heavy industries, infrastructures, the Aswan Dam under, 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 under Nasser, um, uh, continuous broadening of the Suez Canal. More recently, of course, uh, the Suez Canal again broadened or uh, supplemented by a parallel canal partly. So uh, there was this emphasis on infrastructures, on heavy industries, which was all very costly and which somehow already in the 1960s the government didn't have the money to, to pay for. But uh, the idea remained that Egypt could only be politically independent and obviously play a role in the wider region if it also was economically powerful. Now, that backfired because the catch-up plans, in the Egyptian case, didn't work out. Yes, it's uh, as an economist, I, uh, it's something that uh, I know pretty well. I actually worked as a chief economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, where our biggest country of operation was Egypt. After 2014, mm -hmm. Iberdi stopped working in uh, Russia, and suddenly the bank, with its mandate, uh, focused on countries which are committed to multi-party democracy and pluralism, mm -hmm. started to operate in countries, started to work uh, most of all in countries like Egypt and Turkey. Well, Russia was not also a democracy at that point too. But eventually uh, what we saw, and this is exactly what you've just said, 
that economic growth has not materialized. A lot of people are saying, look, why are you complaining? Egypt is growing on average at about 4% per year, but we should not forget indeed that this is a country where you have population growth of 2%. So in fact, uh, per capita growth is not that impressive and doesn't allow uh, fast catch up with uh, Western countries or even some neighbors. And in that sense, uh, economic challenges are huge. And this is where indeed each non-democratic regime, each reincarnation of Egyptian autocracy did not manage, failed to manage to deliver what you've just mentioned. Mm. And so the Middle Eastern model of economy where you have small private formal sector, you have a huge state sector, and you have an informal sector, Mm. this model doesn't allow for uh, for, uh, formal private firms to benefit from uh, being part of global economy, investing and so on, because they're dominated by the state sector. And if you don't have economic growth, you don't create enough jobs for the young people, which results in political tension. But looks like these governments don't learn from each other. So you have Nasser, you have Sadat, you have Mubarak, now you have the another reincarnation of military regime. And they say... In order to stay in power, we control the economy. And you mentioned that military control the economy. That's correct. Um, We control the economy. We know it's not going to be economically successful, but control trumps economic growth. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm I'm, I'm slightly sort of hesitant about the notion of political learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, it's very much used, yeah. But you might say uh, that the successive Egyptian governments since 1952 and all military governments, of course, with the brief exception uh, after nine, after 2011, um, that all these governments, in fact, they learned their lesson because it works out. So, um, so far, as you're saying, uh, it's very disappointing in terms not only of growth, because growth, sometimes there was, but largely because Egypt at some moments could tap into oil, at some other moments tap into gas. But this was very sort of, a, it was rentier growth. It wasn't any productive growth. So, But what they learned from one another is that they can carry on like this. They can carry on because, well, the economic difficulties are always, or have always proven to be manageable, either by going to the IMF, Either by lip, by 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 face-saving reforms, uh, or then, as more recently, again under Sisi, but not only under Sisi, with billions and billions coming in to stabilize Egypt, because Egypt could always put in the claim that it was too big to fail. Now this has maybe changed a little bit, but nonetheless, Egypt gets not only its own rents but rents from abroad. It's always sort of kept the head above the water. It manages. And as it manages, and it's not completely bankrupt, even though, I mean, I just mentioned earlier in a private conversation that the current Egyptian state budget, more than 50% go to either repayment of debt or to interest, which is enormous. Um, But so the country sort of stumbles on. And as the country stumbles on and is allowed to stumble on by the so-called international community, there is no need to uh, think about um, a new political, a new economic, and a new political model. So uh, the logic of regime maintenance, of not only regime maintenance in the sense that the same people, always roughly from the military and uh, people around the military, remain in power, but also that they are able to benefit economically through rather inefficient military industries. Uh, which now recently in the last uh, agreement with the IMF, uh, they are supposed to be 
well, slightly better controlled, but we know how this will work. I mean, the Egyptian government uh, signed up to um, uh, a uh, control of these companies through the Ministry of Finance uh, and uh, other issues like this, but we know how these things will happen. The Ministry of Finance is nobody compared to the Ministry of the of Defense, and obviously you can always find a general or retired general who you put in charge of this particular section in the Ministry of Finance, and then, uh, well, uh, the conditions are, in a sense, uh, fulfilled. You mentioned a very important um, part of the strategy of this regime, which is effectively blackmailing international community with a potential mm. implosion, mm. civil war. Mm. And, uh, of course, we've seen something like this in the neighboring Syria. Uh, to what extent do you think everybody in Cairo understands it and thinks it's part of the strategy? So... Whatever we do, if we save face, if we are not too brutal, the international community will accept it because they don't want repetition of Syria on the Egyptian scale. I mean, there are, I suppose, there are now doubts about, in, in, there are doubts certainly in Egypt, and there has been, there has been, of course, numerous Egyptian economists and numerous uh, uh, people knowing Egypt inside out. They have warning, they've been warning, and they have known that for many, many years. Yeah. Now, the question is to what extent this is sort of entering into, entering the debate in sort of the corridors of power. And this, of course, uh, well, I, I, as I'm no longer uh, and hardly ever walked these corridors, only a little bit, I can't really tell that. Now, I think people in Cairo are, um, say, uh, aware of this. But then the question is, the first question is, well, um, maybe we'll just try it once again. The second question is, and there are, well, tentative, there are tentative uh, signs that uh, Sisi himself uh, has been made aware of that and to an extent seems to be aware of that. But then, of course, well, the trouble is that if you run Egypt today through the military, you need to take into account all the short-term interests of many other officers. And, of course, the first, say, constituency of the current Egyptian president is, whether he wants it or not, is, well, his own, uh, his own profession and the institution. So um, I think there is, a, there is a difficulty there. So probably people are partly aware of it, but then awareness doesn't necessarily help uh, to add. Now, another issue that you, that, you, that, you, that you mentioned is a comparison with countries which are in much worse shape, like Syria. Now, uh, Egypt, as we said earlier, has a rather long history of institutions. Many Egyptians who we talk to say, oh, well, they don't have institutions. But ultimately, if you compare institutions in Egypt, to institutions in elsewhere, they are pretty strong. So uh, institutions are uh, part of Egypt. They have shaped Egypt, and they have shaped Egypt nonetheless into something like a political, com a political community, uh, which works far more coherently than, for instance, Syria. So in that sense, I would not expect Egypt to explode like, for instance, like Syria for very in, for very different reasons. But what I would be more afraid of is that indeed uh, the current policies, which are economically, say, not very sound, and which are politically or internationally overambitious. Well, overambitious again, I think, because sometimes Egypt, of course, uh, stands in for others in this part of the world. Yeah, so there's a degree of delegation, and that produces more rent. But nonetheless, I think that these policies are probably ill-advised. What 
is the real danger, I think, is that Egypt will indeed uh, be prevented from anything like economic development and anything like uh, fair distribution of resources internally for many, many years. And this may weaken Egypt. Um, Egyptian universities are a shadow of themselves. Egyptian schools are a shadow of themselves. The health system doesn't work. So ultimately, uh, this will be counterproductive for future economic development. Lots of Egyptians leave. Hundreds of thousands of doctors leave, yeah, for good reasons. Because under COVID, well, the authoritarian regimes tried in the first, in the beginning. Later on, they changed, uh, arrest doctors and nurses. Yeah. So, uh, so we got these issues. Uh, we got a country that's getting increasingly impoverished, and that will neither serve its economic survival nor, of course, its regional ambitions. Uh, you mentioned 2011. That mm. is also an example when army is an institution. Um, played a very important role. And uh, this is also an example where we saw Egyptians rising up against mm. uh, authoritarian regime. And then like in many other countries, including I would say now Tunisia, mm. went back to non-democratic rule. Mm. Why did that happen? Why do you think Egypt, well, I'm not asking about other Middle mm. Eastern countries, which you also know very well, but we talk today about Egyptian regime, why didn't that impulse, that will of the people to move to a freer, more open country did not succeed? I think, well, um, the, my, my answer would be a very sort of, well, uh, I, probably a, a long-winded one and a, a structural one, yeah. Um, as much as I sympathized, uh, and I was there as well, a part of that period, and as much as I sympathized with what happened, in Egypt uh, in 2011, uh, and admired Egyptians for that. But uh, I think it was an illusion to think, and I had the feeling already then, that to occupy a square, not only a square, there was much more, of course, happening yeah, in provincial towns elsewhere, but to occupy a square, just to visualize it, for two or three weeks uh, does not bring down a political regime with its institutions, with its clients, its customers, the people it co-opted, entire social constituencies, societal constituencies that it has co-opted uh, since the 1950s. So probably the, um, there was too much optimism. And as we know, what happened in 2011 was that the military retreated somehow. It sacrificed Mubarak who in their eyes didn't uh, manage the crisis very well. And in a sense, they redeployed, as the military normally do when they are sort of confronted with, with difficulties. And then they came back, yeah. Now, what helped, of course, was that the Muslim brothers, uh, who were very briefly for about a year in power, that they made a mess of it as well. Mm -hmm. um, now, which is not necessarily surprising, because, uh, well, we talked about learning uh, earlier, but how can you sort of be in power uh, for a year after 50 years of exclusion uh, and you operate in clandestiny. So um, there are real issues, yeah? So again, I think one can blame the Muslim Brothers for a lot, but it's rather a structural issue that first of all, you can't uh, get rid of what has grown over uh, decades just in a, uh, well, in an uprising. Uh, and then of course, the military, as they were pretty strong, they only retreated and on, on uh, uh, tactically, and they they came back with a vengeance. And then, of course, what did they do? But of course, they thought, well, what Mubarak did, sort of 
not a real, it, it was never been a hybrid regime or anything like that, yeah? But every now and then there were some sort of uh, liberal openings and civil society could grow a little bit. No, certainly not, because this is precisely what produced the trouble for us in the first place. So, of course, we have a much more authoritarian government, and that may uh, continue to last for quite some time. So what you're saying is that people who stay in power for 30 years, like Mubarak, will eliminate uh, viable uh, civil society structures, suppress opposition in all forms, create this equilibrium where even after their departure, it's very hard to rebuild the, uh, the institutions of a democratic governance. And we saw that in other mm. uh, Arab countries mm. after uh, what's called Arab mm. Spring. In Tunisia, it was better exactly because Tunisian regime tolerated various forms of uh, mm. self-organization mm. civil society. But even in Tunisia today, mm. we won't call Tunisia as a democracy. It's a much less brutal regime. Mm. Yet it is what uh, we in our uh, recent book call uh, spin dictatorship, mm. that regime that has elections, pretend to have elections, pretend to have uh, democratic uh, procedures, but actually is not a real democracy. Um, but the, the fate of Mubarak also should serve as a warning for Sisi as well. As you said, military, military looked at what's happened in Tahrir Square, understood that Mubarak is not sustainable, sacrificed uh, Mubarak and retreated. Mm -hmm. So the question is, if we have economic difficulties and 2011, uh, which started in 2010 in Tunisia, the Arab Spring of 2011 was in a great uh, uh, part uh, related to economic difficulties, uh, uh, food prices, grain prices, uh, bread prices uh, going up. Uh, uh, if we have a repeat, replay of that, military mm -hmm. can again sacrifice Al-Sisi, <laughs> <Sure. laughs> retreat, and, and uh, Al-Sisi will find himself again in jail, for dying in jail like Mubarak did. Uh, shouldn't he be worried about this if he looks at what's happened to Mubarak? Mubarak didn't die in jail. No, uh, that's, he, right. that's right. <laughs> so yeah. He got out of it <laughs> ultimately. Yeah. Yeah? But uh, well, no, I think you're right. You know, it could be, it could serve, or it might serve as a reminder or as a warning. Now, uh, again, I think uh, what we need to take into account is that when you are, I mean, most people who are in power. Well, I've never been really in power anywhere, so I can't really talk about it. But when we look at it, when we look at it, those most people who are in power are afraid of losing it because they somehow think that they can sort of control the situation better as long as they are there, which may be an illusion. But I think that's what many people do. So the trouble is for Sisi, uh, well, if he, I mean, many people like Sisi, and I'm not only him, I think, uh, they only say the only the only option ultimately is if you are in power for a longer period in such a regime, what necessarily, in a sense, you do things which are not very kind to other people. Well, if you um, step down, well, you you don't you you, you can't control anything. Uh, now, uh, if you step down uh, in favor of a military man he may probably do what you have done to other military men and you will find yourself in, under house arrest or in prison because they will never trust. The, in that sense, the institutions are not strong enough. Yeah. Uh, now, Mubarak, in a sense, got out of it. It's interesting because he got a trial and a retrial and so on and so forth. In other countries, in Libya next doors, Gaddafi was lynched. So in that sense, of course, the institution, that's the interesting bit about Egypt. There is a degree of institutions, but it's not necessary, or that they do work to an extent, 
but they do not work as, say, sufficiently well that if you are losing power, that you would really um, be uh, happy to step down. And then, of course, the issue may be uh, in Egypt a little bit less, but if we just take the other countries around, like Syria, for instance, yeah, uh, where, of course, I mean, authoritarianism has been much more repressive, much more bloody than in Egypt. Although, I mean, Egypt has had its episodes. Um, but uh, then, of course, well, at some stage, you may say, well, if I step down, if I don't control, what will my successors do? Will they possibly um, send me to the International Tribunal in The Hague? So. Uh, ultimately, there is a there is a moment, I suppose, when it's very difficult to envisage stepping down because it creates, say, imminent danger. That's that's a good point, and indeed, uh, Arab Spring reminded us once again that the more brutal your rule is, the harder it is for you to step down. We see the whole spectrum mm -hmm. of leaders mm -hmm. losing power in Arab mm -hmm. Spring, and in Tunisia, the president left the country, but he's alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, uh, Egypt, Mubarak mm -hmm. was arrested, mm -hmm. and uh, in Libya, as you mentioned, uh, Gaddafi was lynched. And there are other examples which, again, show that if you've been brutal to other people, they will, will be brutal towards you. And this is yet another lesson that uh, we draw from, from this example. Uh, you mentioned um, that during COVID, uh, they arrested doctors. Mm -hmm. This is one of the mistakes dictators do. Dictators, mm -hmm. as you rightly said, mm -hmm. uh, make mistakes because they don't have free media, they don't have political opposition, they don't have civil society who uh, provide feedback to them. They only listen to their subordinates who are always yes-men, who <laughs> always support what the supreme commander uh, decides. So it's very uh, easy to lose, uh, to lose a pragmatic approach to decision-making. And uh, you mentioned the external policy, foreign policy, uh, that's a typical problem of dictators. Sometimes they overreach. Actually, last mm. year we had two books called Overreach, one about Russia, mm. a Russian imperial mm. policy, and one about China, which is also mm. now which overreaching. Yeah. And mm. so what you're saying is probably we need a third book, and maybe your book should have been <laughs> rebaptized <laughs> Egypt and Overreach. Uh, but uh, what are other mistakes you see when you say Egypt is a fragile power? What does contribute to the fragility of Egyptian regime when we think about mistakes the government makes? Um, if I may sort of um, not give you, I mean, you may come back, but uh, mm -hmm. maybe not give you a straight answer mm -hmm. because certainly there are mistakes, yeah, and all governments make mistakes. And indeed, as you're saying, and I completely understand and, and, and subscribe to the, to, 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 to the proposition that uh, in authoritarian, authoritarian governments, in a sense, structurally don't have enough information and even, well, discourage people for informing them. So it's, in a sense, more difficult for them. Now, they do have every now and then uh, sort of means to keep the ears to the ground and so on. So sometimes Mubarak wasn't too bad. In, I mean, for, I mean, after all, I mean, he lost it after 30 years, but he managed to survive 30 years, which is not bad in a sense, yeah, from that point of view. Now, uh, but I think uh, the trouble is more so these structural issues, yeah. Of course, they make mistakes uh, and, well, one of the mistakes, of course, Sisi's mistakes is that, uh, and many of her around him, that he thinks um, that, well, uh, a country and an economy works like an army. You command. You say, we build the new Suez Canal. Okay, we build the new uh, uh, capital city and so on. Yeah, And he's proud. He's proud of the absence of feasibility studies, which is nonetheless interesting. He, and he says it on television. Yeah, he, He's proud of it. Um, now, eh, there are mistakes. 
but then there are structural issues. It's very difficult to imagine a country like Egypt, which, um, well, I return to what I said earlier. In the 1960s, there was this illusion and this push towards development as it was understood at the time. And that didn't quite work out. And indeed, you may say from that moment onwards, the Egyptian economy was fragile. Well, it was fragile before because indeed this push didn't work. Now, why was it fragile? Well, some people say because of colonialism. Some people say because of the uh, Baltaliman uh, Agreement in 1838, which uh, didn't allow the Ottoman Empire, and at the time Egypt formerly was part of the Ottoman Empire, didn't allow the empire to raise protective tariffs. There is a debate about that. I don't want to go into this. We don't have the time. It's a very interesting debate. But nonetheless, we have a country that, whose only sort of real attempt at development as it was understood at the time, with all these caveats, yeah, didn't work. And ever since, well, uh, it tried to somehow, um, well, uh, create something like social justice, something like, yeah, to an extent, and something like development. And none of the policies worked. Statism didn't work. Sometimes it sort of veered on socialism, but not quite. Uh, then the liberal reform the 1980s didn't work. Uh, now we are back to a very curious mixture between, say, well, uh, private sector and nonetheless a lot of statism uh, through the military especially, yeah, doesn't work either. Now, uh, different, different recipes have been tried, maybe not consistently enough, maybe not well enough, but nonetheless there is a suspicion that if you're a latecomer in development, and only, I mean, you know this better than I do, uh, but there are very few countries which um, left uh, decolonization and which actually made it, which got out of the lower or lower middle income category. There are very few of them. Now, of course, one can look at Korea. One can. The other day I learned uh, that Korea, um, well, that South, South Korea, uh, had its uh, civil servants initially trained in Pakistan. Now, today it would be the other way around, yeah? So... Um, it is actually the other way around. There is an uh, institute in Korea which trains civil servants I'm, I'm from sure developing is. countries. Sure Korea Development Institute. Korea made it, made it in a sense, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, South Korea. Uh, the oil-producing countries like Saudi Arabia made it in a different way, but only in a very different way. But now they are a minority. So in a sense, we may say that nonetheless, there is such a historical legacy and such a historical weight that makes it very difficult for countries like Egypt, under present global economic and political conditions, to get out of it. That's a very good point. And usually when economists talk about this middle income trap, they think exactly about the issues that you, you mentioned, the institutional change that is required. Uh, and for example, if you think about the other example of success, which is Central and Eastern Europe, which after being dominated by Soviet Union, mm. uh, many of these countries are now high-income countries. Mm. They've really succeeded mm. to change themselves within a, a generation. But it's also the question of institutions. They wanted to be part of Europe. They adopted European institutions. They eliminated uh, crony capitalism, which uh, some post-Soviet countries have not uh, managed to mm. Uh, remove a day or construct it. Um, and that worked. In Korea, again, there was a moment in the 1990s when we thought that maybe this country is also in the middle income trap, dominated by mm. oligarchs, by chebols. And then the crisis helped to reawaken the impetus for reform, institutional change, and Korea opened up and brought in foreign investment and relaunched a different economic growth model. And so 
this is exactly the domination of institutions which were good probably for in infrastructure investment in the past, are not sufficient for a growth, as you said, that demands education, human capital, investment in industries which are different from what brought initial successes and development. As you're saying, it's very easy to build an S1 high dam mm -hmm. or a military regime. Mm -hmm. You command. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to develop a high-tech industry which is vertical, which is horizontal, more than vertical, uh, under such conditions. Yeah. But I would just sort of add one caveat to what you're saying. I, I'm, I'm convinced of the importance of institutions. And much of the book is about, say, Egypt having sort of institutions which are, well, to an extent resemble those of European countries, but not quite. So it got sort of stopped and truncated somewhere down the road. Yeah. So it's sort of a midway, a halfway house between other so-called developing countries and Europe or America. It's somewhere in the middle. So there is a lot to be said about institutions in Egypt, and they are more, say, they are stronger than elsewhere, but nonetheless not strong enough, not as strong as elsewhere. But then I think one of the issues that we need to address is that in most of the countries where we have, say, something like working democracies, consolidated democracies, and I'm using all the caveats, but I think now of, say, well, let's say about uh, Europe and Japan and uh, with all caveats again. So we are nonetheless in countries which are first of all high-income countries, which doesn't mean that all high-income countries must have such institutions, but also where these institutions are the result of economic and societal transformations that go back many, many centuries, which have a lot to do with the emergence of capitalism in certain parts of the world And the others, like uh, Egypt, well, if you use that terminology, would have been peripheral capitalist countries. And somehow it didn't go as far. So the question is, to what extent can we sort of transfer institutions from one historical context, and I'm very careful not to say cultural context, from one historical context into another. Now, some countries, like Korea, uh, seem to have adopted them in their own ways, and it works, yeah. But Nonetheless, others haven't quite. So the question is, certainly institutions, but institutions always, in one way or another, need to be adapted to the societies which they are supposed to influence. And that's the big issue, of course. Yeah. Again, the argument is not that it can't work, and the argument is not uh, an Orientalist argument that would say, oh, well, let's leave the Egyptians with authoritarianism, let's leave... Uh, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. But... Um, I think one should really be very, very careful to think about the, say, societal underpinnings and the societal grounding. They must be appropriated by societies, otherwise they don't work. Yes, uh, there are other examples. It's not just Korea. You, you can think about Chile, which is also a country mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is a high-income country uh, with uh, functioning democratic institutions. But indeed, as you rightly said, uh, it's very hard to find a good example of a Middle Eastern country which successfully imported uh, democratic institutions. Or African for that or purpose. Or African for that purpose. There are functioning democracies in Africa. But indeed, uh, 10 years after the Arab Spring, 12 years after mm -hmm. the Arab Spring, people are much more pessimistic than 12 years ago. Yet, there are degrees mm -hmm. of brutality, degrees of repression. Syria remains a very brutal regime. Mm -hmm. Tunisia remains a much softer regime. So while, as I said, we shouldn't consider Tunisia today as a liberal, pluralistic democracy, still it's much, uh, much more democratic, much more open 
than other Middle Eastern countries. And in that sense, it's not like the history, the geography, the culture are necessarily uh, unsurmountable barrier for, uh, for openness my and argument, freedom. My argument would be that there's a lot of similarity mm-hmm. between Egypt and Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Now, Egypt has gone much, in, in Egypt, things have gone, say, wrong mm-hmm. much, more, much, much more quickly than in Tunisia. But if we look at Tunisia and Egypt, both countries have a long history as states in their current form. Egypt goes back basically to the beginning of the 19th century. Tunisia goes back to the 18th century, to the mid-18th century. In these boundaries, with the central government in Tunisia, it had a constitution before the French arrived in Tunisia. So what we see is that those countries where violence was not absent, but in Egypt it wasn't wasn't absent. But nonetheless, um, those who are older and were, in a sense, institutions, have a longer tradition the current state institutions, and where they have been a little bit appropriated by the inhabitants, they, in a sense, nonetheless um, are in a better situation than, for instance, Syria, where this has not been the case. Um, Now, I can't go into Syria now. It's not to say that there had been no state institutions in Syria under the Ottomans already, but the history was slightly different. Syria, as such, became independent, you may say, in 1946, in 1947. Um, Egypt had sort of, uh, well, the institutions of the monarchy, which were not the ones today, but nonetheless, it was Egypt. So it goes back as a state a little bit longer. Uh, thank you, Eberhard. And uh, in the end of the podcast, I usually ask uh, my guests a question. What would you do if you were the president? You're already president. You're a president of our scientific board. And I don't want you to become president of Egypt, but imagine you're an advisor to Sisi. Somehow you meet him in the the street of Paris uh, and you say, uh, dear Mr. President, this is what I know about Egypt. From this book, which you must read, I would actually take away this lesson, which I would like to give it to you. What would be this uh, one minute uh, speech you would give to Sisi saying, this is going to be better for you and for your country, if that's the same thing. Well, yes, I mean, it's not the same thing necessarily, but if it was the same thing, I mean, there is one thing that I would certainly say, not necessarily uh, inviting him to a step down, but I would say, well, look, there is an option, possibly, uh, with all the caveats I made earlier. That's the one option. The other one is, indeed, I mean, no change will happen overnight, but indeed, revise the policies of exclusion, of uh, marginalization of other political forces, open up, bring other people in, listen to debates, get not only a phony national dialogue, uh, which serves to better arrest uh, candidates for president, don't do that, but open up, listen to people, and then in a couple of years, their real elections. And of course, in the meantime, do a lot of convincing to those who support you that this, in the end, including in the military, is probably a better deal in the long run because if you have a functioning military, ultimately, without a functioning country, even your military will no longer function. Thank you very much, Eberhard. So this is uh, an advice, uh, Gorbachev's advice to launch a new perestroika in Egypt. (laughs) We'll see if uh, President Sisi follows your advice in the years to come. But thank you very much for this insightful conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Science. Science. Science.